Hello, and welcome to episode six of the LCLC podcast. In this episode, I talk with Jane Gallup, who delivered the critical keynote at the LCLC's 1990 conference. Currently a distinguished professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Gallup burst onto the literary theory scene in 1982 with the publication of her book, The Daughter's Seduction, Feminism and Psychoanalysis. In subsequent years, she has continued to publish a string of provocative books, including Reading Lacan, Feminist Accused of Sexual Harassment, Anecdotal Theory, and her most recent title, The Groundbreaking Sexuality, Disability, and Aging, Queer Temporalities of the Phallus. I began our wide-ranging discussion with the question I like to ask all my guests here on the LCLC podcast. What do you remember about your visit to Louisville? Well, as I told you, nothing. I, I, rem- I, I have a vague memory that I went, but I have no memory of being there. So I'm not surprised by that, but in our uh, correspondence setting up this interview, I shared with you the uh, the name of the talk that you gave, which was Feminist Criticism, A Contradiction in Terms, and my understanding is that that rang a bell for you. Well, yeah, because it's the title of something I've written. So I re- I, <laughs> I do have some memory of that. It's... It, it's um... Yeah, it's the title of a of a book. It's not a book. It's the title of a chapter in a book I wrote. So, um, and I actually like picked up the book, picked out the book, and brought it here. So, and I remember that there was a chapter called "A Contradiction in Terms." Um, and can you share with us the gist of what the chapter and likely what the talk was that you gave? in Louisville in 1990? So I, I, I kind of like, through a reading of a, lots of different essays in that anthology, I lay out what is, is really a kind of central contradiction um, in feminist criticism. So it's actually, the, the, the quote is from Lillian Robinson and from an essay she actually wrote in 1971 which was a very important early essay called Dwelling in Decencies. And she says, um, despite my continuing concern with elaborating a feminist criticism that would in fact be feminist, I don't think it occurred to me until quite recently that there might really be a contradiction between the two terms. And so that's what I kind of read out. And I don't try to resolve the contradiction. I kind of show how the contradiction keeps coming up and how it looks like it's a contradiction between two different kinds of feminist critics, between a feminist critic who's more attached to a kind of formalistic reading of literature and a feminist critic that's more attached to feminism. But in fact, I feel like all of feminist criticism um, is actually um, lives that contradiction. So that, I mean, I think that's pretty, a short version of that, that um, argument. And so it was, it's a reading, um, it's a kind of close reading of these early essays of feminist criticism that were gathered together in an anthology and in which I keep, I find um, this contradiction coming up in various forms. And looking back over the essay now and holding this book in your hand that you wrote, do you feel, do you, what's your feeling about 
this work that you did so many years ago? So that's interesting. On the one hand, I, um, I like it. I don't feel like I feel the opposite of embarrassed. I'm kind of proud that I did it. One of, so I, so I'm writing, I was writing this. I wrote this essay sometime in the very late uh, 1980s. So in the 1980s, at that moment, I'm going back and I'm reading essays that are 10 years old, which uh, 10 years doesn't sound like a lot now as I'm talking to you about something I wrote 30 years ago. But at that time, it was a real lot because um, feminist criticism in the late 80s is very much part of the literary academies. And in the late 70s, it wasn't. It was, it was very formative. And I was trying to, one of the things I was trying to do was um, in the, in the, by the late 80s, people were pretty much embarrassed by 1970s feminist criticism. They thought it was very kind of um, crude and immature. And, um, and I wanted to go back and show that it was actually theoretically quite interesting and sophisticated. That was my goal for this part of this book was to go back and see that, um, that very interesting, like one of the things people understood was that the very word theory, which was so, so highly valued by the late 80s, people thought of 70s feminist criticism as not theoretical. And I went back and actually showed the theoretical sophistication of these essays of what was going on. And that was part of what, what I was trying to do in this. And so, um, so thinking about that, I'm glad I did that. I, I, that was that was part of my motivation was not um, was kind of to recapture uh, a period of recent history that people were dismissing as kind of crude and um, immature. Uh, and well, I was just going to say one more thing, but but in fact, the thing that's ironic as I look at it now, because we're now like thirty years later, thirty. Mm -hmm. um, or more, is that um, when I was writing this in the late 80s, feminist criticism was, was still like an incredibly important piece of the American Literary Academy. It was, it was, it was like front to the center, everybody paid attention to it. And now it's, and I, I, I did not foresee as I was writing this, how the whole thing, like gets relegated to a kind of a of a period. It's basically a, of the period of the 70s and 80s, the 1970s, 90s, 80s. I mean, most critics are feminists and there's a little feminist this, and a little feminist that, but feminist criticism is not a major part of the way anybody reads literary literature mm -hmm. anymore. So, so while I was worried in the late 80s about the relegation of something 10 years old, you know, to the kind of dustbin of history, I didn't realize that I was actually involved in a, in a moment and a, uh, something that would itself within 10 years, and certainly within 20, be itself just seen as a, a, a passing moment and, and be changed so much. Mm -hmm. And looking back now, do you feel that this failure to take the road of criticism that had feminism as as it's a central conduit to it what's your feeling about 
that evolution for our profession that it didn't go the, the way that you're sketching for us now? You know, it's hard to, it's very hard for me to say because it's at this juncture, um, 30 years later, the fact that things could look so different than I was able to imagine they would look as I was writing in the late 80s, as I was writing 30 years ago. Um, as I, when I was speak, I mean, when I was speaking in 1990, the reason I'm talking about the late 80s is February 1990 is the right. late 80s, right? It's not really the 90s. Right. Um, and, you know, so many things changed um, with such speed. So, um, and I, I mean, I can't even say, I don't even know what I feel about it. I feel like it's hard to imagine that this, this particular book project writing around 1981, which was, which was a kind of attempt to do a kind of history of feminist criticism, how it started, where it came from, how it got institutionalized, and in which I was covering really only two decades, because that's how old it was at the time. Um, I think I really didn't understand that I was writing a history at the end of something. I thought mm -hmm. I was writing a history. And, and, and I couldn't have predicted it. Uh, I mean, I guess it's my, my blind spots or what I can know. I was, I was so thoroughly embedded in that moment, mm -hmm. which didn't seem like it was something that was about to, to pass. Right. Um, well, yeah, go ahead. I, I come onto the scene professionally a, a few years later. I start my PhD program at Duke in 1994, and I was part of a class, at least the, the scuttlebutt, I guess I would say, within the department, was that Eve Sedgwick then had had the reins as DGS and had done the unthinkable, and that was try to stack the deck with nothing but queer theory adherence that came into Duke and that this was sort of the the pleasure dome years for Duke in the late in the mid and late 90s and my sense on the ground as a, as a student of Eve's was that I had arrived in the middle of a battle between second generation feminists and what I thought of as third generation queer theorists and that um, is your sense that that queer theory subsumes feminism or does this whole conversation just get sidelined by the time you and I are talking now? Well, th that's, a, that's a good question. It's also a useful piece of history. It is certainly true that basically what, what gets front and center in the 90s, is that whereas feminist criticism was front and center in the 80s, in the, across the 90s, queer theory becomes much more, has much more energy and it's much more important. Um, it's also ironic because of course, Eve Sedgwick is herself a second wave feminist. I mean, just in terms of age and generation and also she was doing feminist criticism when she started up. Um, so, uh, so that's just interesting too. I mean, it was not, um, but, yeah, that, I mean, I think if we were telling this story in the 90s or maybe even at the beginning of the 21st century, we might have told that story. And certainly now as people tell, 
the history of say feminist criticism and queer theory, they see queer theory as kind of um, coming after feminist criticism, having um, you know benefited from it, having reacted against it. I mean, there's a kind of a generational thing, but none of that really explains where we are in 2021. Um, although it is true that queer theory, queer theory also feels pretty old in 2021, but it certainly doesn't feel as old as feminist criticism. It certainly has uh, still more valence. People are still sort of doing queer things, although queer things have, have moved a lot in the 21st century. Um, but I don't know really, like, so there's like, first there was, there was a move to queer temporality and then people started doing um, crip theory and kind of queer disability stuff. And that's also where my work went as I moved into the 21st century. Uh, right. partly because I think I'm always interested in trying to write something people might want to read. <laughs> um, and, you know, and in part because I might have been a little bit scarred by writing a book that I spent six years on that almost no one read because, because its moment was past, right? I mean, and this, this also goes back to the passage of time. I still feel bad. I can't remember February 1990. But since we're talking now somehow about the passage of time and the way that that works in intellectual and critical history. Um, when I started writing the book that became around 1981, I started writing it in 1985, which was the moment in which feminist criticism was most important front and center. And I was writing in reaction to what were then the, the uh, reigning histories, the most important being Toral Moy's 1985 book, Sexual Textual Politics. I was writing because I thought that those histories were wrong and I was writing to react to them. And had I managed to get the book written in like two years and published in 1987, it would have, you know, been taken up as intervening in a in a in a hot debate. But I, you know, it took it took me six years to write. I I did it the slow way. I did it. I did it kind of thoroughly, and wanted to study things. I wanted to go back and and do, um, you know read things that I had never read that were older, do a lot of stuff, and it just took me longer to write. And by the time the book came out, it had missed its moment. Mm -hmm. um, That's funny because I thought you were talking about sexuality, dis, dis, sexuality, disability, aging, queer temporalities of the phallus, which seems to be- I was talking about it when? Your conversation about your earlier book and your feeling of disappointment as having missed its moment of publication, uh -huh. that I had listened to a couple of podcasts that you've given recently, and you seem to have similar feelings about your most recent book, Sexuality, Disability, Aging, that you haven't been able to secure the audience that you had hoped you would get with right, the publication but I don't of like that it book. Because I missed my moment. It is true. You're right. So, so maybe this is my recurrent complaint. I, it is not true. I don't feel that about every book I ever wrote. And that's part of it is, is that I've, I've written a couple books that have had really large uptake and audience. And that was just like an incredible thrill. It's just wonderful to to write something and feel like a lot of people are talking about it and want to think about it etc 
And it, but it's produced in me a sense of real disappointment when that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so yeah, I didn't realize you'd listened to my podcast about my most recent book, which, you know, was published in 2019. Um, and I was disappointed by that, but I never felt that that the reason the, that book didn't get taken up was because I had missed its moment. It had missed its moment. I felt like I felt like I was writing a book for the moment I was in, and 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 the moment wasn't over when it was published. So I have no idea why that book didn't get taken up. Uh, actually, right, Un unless somehow the profession and uh, all of us participating in this conversation have turned our backs, unfortunately, in keeping up with writers who we should be reading, that this, your complaint doesn't strike me as, as singular. It strikes me as reflective of the moment that collectively we're in, or am I wrong? I don't know. I, I think I probably don't have quite enough sense of the moment that we're in. And I, you know, uh, I feel like there are fields in which, you know, small subfields in which people like read each other and invite each other to conferences and all of that sort of stuff, um, that that's still going on. I think that the, the there's not the, the central sense of reading kind of across the, the discipline that there might have been in the 1980s or 1990s. I think that might might be different. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. I mean, I haven't, I haven't actually studied this. So it's, you know, it's, it's mainly, it may be my personal complaint. Um, it, um, I wrote, um, I wrote a book when I was really young called The Daughter's Seduction. It was published in 1982 when I was 30 years old. And it had an enormous response that kind of changed my life, right? I just started getting invitations to speak at all kinds of places. And I got invitations to apply for jobs and all sorts of things happened. And I thought, oh, that's what happens when you write a book, right? And um, Although I, I probably never wrote a book in which that strong a response happened, I wrote several other books that had a response like that. One of them being Reading Lacan and another one being Feminist Accused of Sexual Harassment. So I had that experience at least three times, enough to feel like it could happen. Now, it's true that Feminist Accused of Sexual Harassment came out in like 1997, so that was still a really long time ago. Um, so it may, I mean, I think what you're suggesting is what I think of as, as you know, on the one hand, I, if I'm complaining this about two books, it's already not just the specific thing, it's different things. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, it, and it's, it is, it's kind of a funny complaint because I've been lucky enough to have that kind of response to my work, um, to complain that I don't have it every time I write a book. Um, maybe, uh, spoiled um well feminists accused of sexual harassment i i have very strong memories of reading that book because i was finishing up at duke at that point and um i got an advanced copy of it and i was getting ready i joined the faculty here in the summer of 1998 and so i was reading it um 
with some sense of it being a, uh, a, a kind of friendly, engaging warning uh, to, to, to me as I was beginning my career as a professor, I was looking at the story that you told as to what happened to you. And I, I was curious, so I, I very much enjoyed that book and I have strong memories of it. And I wanted to share with you the biography that is provided in the conference program for Jane Gallup. And it says, you were at Rice University at the time. And then it ends with, she is one of the leading voices worldwide in feminist theory, and especially in the dialogue between feminism and psychoanalysis. Her writing is particularly known for its combination, in the words of Barbara Johnson, of, quote, scholarly rigor with relaxed scandalousness, end quote. What's your feeling when you read that about you in 1990, an auditorium took that in? I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's very familiar. It's very familiar as the sort of portrait of me in 1990. Um, and I think that, for example, that description by Barbara Johnson is one that I that makes me happy. I like that. I like that that kind of um, combination of two things that we usually separate, and those particular two things. I think. Um, so, right, the the accusation of sexual ha harassment behind feminist accused happened in um, the accusation happened, I think, in the fall of 91. I started my job here, it, it, and it dated to an event that happened, or events that happened my first year here in Milwaukee, which is, was all just a year after I was at the Louisville Conference, right? Because I was at the Louisville Conference during my the beginning of my last semester at Rice. Um, and I think that I couldn't have, at that time I couldn't have foreseen what happened to me. I couldn't have foreseen that I would be accused of sexual harassment much, you know, and therefore I couldn't have foreseen that I wrote something about it or I was thinking about it. It was, it was actually unimaginable to me. Um, so I don't know if that's part of what, you're wondering about or asking. Well, as, as, as somebody in conversation with you right now, it's got that sort of Oscar Wilden touch of um, cruising for a bruising, you know, that the writing is kind of on the wall about what's going to happen to Jane Gallup um, as somebody who's not you, who's, you know, just had this armchair experience of reading the book afterwards and now realizing the relation of the reason why you and I are chatting that in 1990, you were here giving as the keynote. And this was the, this was the aura 
uh, around you. Right. Um, yeah, I think I don't, I still don't get quite what you're saying. I mean, <laughs> and maybe that's because I'm me and not you. Yeah. Um, which is to say that I was actually it seems blindsided and probably would be again if it was if I was back in 1991. Mm -hmm. um, uh, which is to say that I think my my sense of my the scandalousness of my work was seemed very much to me contained in this world of um, of writing and, and academic performance. So it, it didn't seem, I guess it seemed like scandalous in quotes rather than, right? I mean, what, what you're saying is the irony is, so Barbara Johnson says, one of the things I've known for is my scandalousness and within two years there was a scandal at which I was the, the, the center of it. And I guess I didn't, and maybe this is just naive. I didn't, I, although I would, I liked the idea of me as scandalous, I didn't imagine a scandal in that sense. If you feel that that age of conference going is over for uh, our profession, for various reasons, the COVID moment, as well as the changing mores that in, in uh, I believe in the sexual harassment book and, and perhaps elsewhere, you've written about how the pedagogical relationship, the learning relationship is bound up in, in, an, in a sense of an erotic current um, that goes on in, in, in personal interactions and that conferences um, at a certain point in the profession were great catalysts for that kind of culture. But I'm not sure the culture is that uh, of our profession is, is in that moment still. And I'm not sure that conferences make sense in the new culture that we're in, or am I wrong? Well, so that's a really interesting, rich question. So, and I have, I don't have an answer, but I have a lot of thoughts that go in different directions. One, of course, is the pandemic and the loss, literally the loss of in-person conferences, the literal loss, and which I have, I have felt no impetus to, um, to log on and watch somebody speak online. Uh, to me, it's just like the loss of what I think of what I liked about conferences, speeches, people coming just to my university and speak. Um, and at, at this moment, and so this is, that's just a narrow thing. You're asking about a much broader thing, which I want to get to. But first, I want to talk about this moment, the sort of pandemic moment and what that means, right? So I haven't spoken at a conference since the MLA in Seattle in January of 2020, which is say, right? shortly before the, the pandemic. Um, but I am speaking at a conference next week in person. I'm going to the, um, 
something called the SCLA, which is the Society for Comparative Literature and Art uh, in Austin, Texas. Like, and I find myself really looking forward to, so let's just say that, going to a conference where I'm in fact going to be the keynote speaker, uh, going to a conference, speaking live to a live audience, getting to meet people, etc. I mean, I always, I do, I always loved conferences and it's true that I wrote about them as sites. Um, I wrote about them in feminist cues as sites of a certain kind of place where the, the erotic and the intellectual kind of intermingle in some really intense way. Um, I am also in November giving a talk on, on an online conference for the first time. And I don't know what that's going to be like, because I mean, obviously that's kind of what's happened during the pandemic. So I've been thinking a lot about those things and how much more, how I, sorry, I agreed to speak on this online conference. Um, but I have no idea what it's going to feel like. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a conference in Dublin, but <laughs> it's just me sitting in my, uh, in front of my computer in Milwaukee. So that's one thing, but I think you're asking about something else ultimately, although, right. Which is to say how much are people going to, there, and there's a lot of issues with conferences. You're, you're connecting it to the, the change in the way people are thinking about um, the erotics of the intellectual life in this moment. Um, and I have to say, I haven't thought about it in terms of that, um, but, it's, but it's pretty interesting to think about. I think I've thought about it in terms of something else, which is, which is I feel like the, um, the prognosis for the profession is pretty bleak, right? You know, the MLA convention is not what it used to be because first of all, they don't even do job markets there, but the job market is so horrible. So people coming out of graduate school, I mean, conferences were always filled with graduate students who were very excited about getting into the profession. And that's a very sad story now because most of them will never become, get, you know, full-time permanent jobs as professors. So, so I think that changes probably everything about, uh, because I, I think that a lot of what um, gave energy to conferences and even talks at universities were, you know, bright, energetic, aggressive graduate students who, who wanted to talk to the speaker and wanted to ask the devastating question and wanted to, you know, talk about what was going on and drink afterwards as opposed to, you know, those of us who are, you know, always, already tenured and will be, will be around for a while. So I, I think of that more than I think about the, the sort of changing sexual mores, which is that the whole culture and atmosphere and outlook of the profession just feels completely different than it did in the late 20th century. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I think I would imagine that will affect conferences, um, that does affect conferences. And it seems to me that's, that's an even bigger kind of factor. Mm -hmm. Another question I wanted to ask, uh, continuing in the vein of thinking about sexuality and, uh, 
what your experience is in the classroom, my own experience in talking to my undergraduates, and um, I see myself as sort of the Gen Xer here talking to the, the boomer here, I'm 55, uh, is it, a, to me, a surprising number of my students really are into um, presenting themselves in terms of their sexual identity as largely asexual. There's just, they don't get this, this, this need to really focus. They may be, they may have, have uh, an investment in their identity, but to talk about sex to them doesn't have the frisson or, or, or interest. And I was wondering if, if this was something that you noticed and if you had any thoughts about asexuality as an emerging sexual identity. So it's, first of all, not something I've really noticed. I mean, I'm aware that asexuality is, I'm aware because I've read about it, not because um, is, you know, has been over the last 10 years, particularly an emerging identity as people started, you know, crediting alternative sexual identities. Asexuality started to emerge as an alternative sexual identity. So I'm aware of it. I guess theoretically, right? Um, but it's not something I've really encountered in my students, in the classroom, in students I work with. Um, I feel like, um, so I, I teach graduate classes in crypt theory and there's a lot of energy and interest around that. Um, and it, you know, it, it, it really combines a certain queer theory with a certain even more radical anti-normativity. But a lot, of, a lot of the energy of that feels, um, feels a little bit like queer theory in the 90s, right? You know, like really, you know, asserting difference and anti-normativity and, um, and the erotics of that. So I, I see that. I mean, and maybe that's kind of how I got into crypt theory in part, that and not being able to walk very well. Um, but yeah, I don't think I've really run into, and, and I teach an undergraduate course um, in feminist literary theory and in which we read, we, read, we read stuff from the 20th century. We don't read stuff from the 21st century. And partly because of there's not a lot of, because there is a lot of feminist literary theory in the 21st century, as I was saying. But um, there's a lot of student interest in various, some of, some of the sexual things and some of the sexual debates in late 20th century feminism among, and I'm talking about, you know, undergraduate students here in Milwaukee. Right. Another question I had for you, Jane, I, I call it the, the, the Gen X critique of in taking up your uh, your work on aging, sex, and disability, and in listening to you talk about that, you, you you remark that this is really breaking new ground, and that there hasn't been a lot of work uh, done on on bringing those together into a fruitful conversation. 
And the Gen Xer in me the, says, really? Because boomers, you know, they what happens to them, it's the first time it happens to them. So, you know, the sex revolution for the boomers is the sex revolution for the world. Do you, how do you respond to that sort of critique that questions the originality of, of this moment for that kind of work? Well, I am by birth a boomer, so I can't deny that I am that. Um, and I certainly had um, some of the typical formative experiences at the same time as boomers. I, I lived through the sexual revolution. I lived through the second wave of feminism. Uh, I lived through the moment that post-structuralism came to the American Academy. And all those moments felt similar, like, oh my God, this is gonna change everything. And then I, and I'm, so that's very formative for me. That's kind of who I am and that is part of how I think. So I will, I will grant that, yeah, I probably sound like that because that's kind of who I am or what my experience is. On the other hand, I would claim that what, what I was trying to claim what I continue to try to claim was um, a new way of thinking or original or about that particular book and that project is that although uh, there has been a lot of work at the intersection of queer and disability, there is remarkably little work at the intersection of queer and aging, remarkably little. Um, and, and I'm just talking about like, what's out there? What are people talking about? What are conferences about? What are people publishing on, et cetera, right? And there is also, despite the fact that, that, um, that social, the social categories of disability and aging interact a lot. And, and people talk about it. So like they, when they talk about COVID, they talk about COVID for, for, they talk about COVID for older people and then they talk about COVID for like um, disabled people. Those, those things interact a lot. There has been very little interest in, um, in most of the disability theory of theorizing age. So, so I feel like it's something people should, I mean, that's, that's, that's one of the aspects of the, that work that I'm continuing to work on is um, a lack of attention to aging as, you know, one of those categories that people pay attention to. Uh, it's just, it's really interesting. I go to conferences like the MLA, other sorts of conferences, there's a lot going on. Uh, National Women's Studies is another example. Lot going on in relation to disability, very little going on in relation to aging, very little energy, very little interest, et cetera. So yeah, I mean, we're all aging. It's not just boomers, everybody's aging. Aging is just something that happens to everybody all the time from the beginning of your life to the end. But, um, and my theory as to why that might be the lack of interest in aging, there's, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons, but I think that to think about aging means you have to think about change over time. You can't think in terms of static identities. This is very significant and I appreciate you talking about it. The other uh, 
the other subject that I wanted to ask you about before we say goodbye, uh, and I, I bring it up in some sense as a father of a daughter, a college student now, my daughter Lucy, and seeing the kinds of things that she wants to write. And that is what people talk about now as auto theory, but what you talked about is anecdotal theory. And do you feel that anecdotal or auto theory is something that's finally getting picked up within our profession as, as an important topic? I do feel it is. Um, you know, I, I feel like just literally in the last two or three years, there have been a lot of things published about auto theory, not just people doing it, but people writing about it as a thing and, and kind of gathering it together and seeing it. And, you know, it goes back. It goes back a ways. Uh, it goes back into the 20th century. Right. Um, but, and, and I do feel like it's what I've been doing for a very long time. Um, not necessarily since the beginning of my work, but, but for quite a while now. Um, and I've, you know, I've known, I, I've had, I've seen graduate students who talking about their interest in auto theory. They want to do auto theory. I had a graduate student last year who wanted to do, proposed to do an independent study with me on auto theory. So I did that and, and read a number of different things, both about it and then examples of it. Um, and I, you know, I'm, it makes me kind of happy because it's, it's like, well, it's like this thing I've been doing and I didn't know it was called auto theory because it hadn't been named that when I started doing it. So I gave it my own name, but auto theory is probably a better name for it than anecdotal theory. Um, right. Because it, it, it's not just about anecdotes. It's about <laughs> basically memoirs. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because I feel like it makes my work, it makes me understand another context for my work. Um, and what I what it is I've been trying to do, certainly since the 90s. Mm -hmm. The most significant class that perhaps that I took at, at Duke was with with Eve. And it was a, she she called it experimental critical writing. And and now I think if she was with us, she would say, yeah, auto theory. <laughs> yeah, like we just we didn't know. I mean, it seems obvious now, but but then. You know, we just kind of got together, and it it it's hard to to convey how mind blowing it was to sit around a table with a bunch of really precocious young people, and all we wanted to do was somehow go beyond where the conversation was, and we understood that that meant somehow figuring out how to uh, push theory and creative writing together and lived experience together and, and see what, where that would go. And um, so I agree with you and uh, I, I wanted to share with you uh, the story about Eve and, and, and what her terminology was at, at the time in the, the mid nineties. Right, yeah. You know, and that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Jane Gallup. If you did, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and hit like. And as always, I would ask you to consider joining us for an upcoming LCLC conference. Consult the louisvilleconference.com for details.